Morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry, but because we have some technical problems, you will not be able to get any pictures. The best-looking picture you'll get tonight is me standing here on the beamer. <clears throat> Thank you. But... No, no, leave it. Okay. Leave it. It's, uh, I was asked if I want to transfer it to their computer and this and that and the other, and I said, look, let me talk to you. All right? Uh, it does wonders for my brains, and uh, you will be sitting here all evening puzzling what is this man talking about. So both of us are going to have a very good time. Uh, I was, I'm a typical example of one of the young people who survived the Holocaust, and I mean Holocaust in action. People much younger than me didn't have the chance because they were killed usually at the very beginning, and people quite a bit older, maybe 20 years older and so on, didn't have much of a chance. I was just the right age. I was born in Germany, and my father was a mechanical engineer, and he was also an electrical engineer. We lived in Berlin, Berlin, Germany, and uh, when I was about, my father worked for Siemens, and uh, he had a very, very successful job. And in 1933, Hitler came to power. And immediately, although not officially, but basically all major corporations started firing Jews. They didn't want any more Jews. A couple of years later, it became official. But it wasn't a question of a Jew losing his job. It was a question of a Jew not being able to get, a, to get a job because companies simply stopped hiring Jews. They fired Jews and they hired. They didn't hire. Uh, it was part of the original German plan to make Germany Jew clean, Judenfrei. And they succeeded extremely well. Uh, relatively few people were killed Jews were killed the first couple of years that Hitler was in power. And Jews had the freedom to leave Germany. There was only one little hook attached to it. First of all, the German population knew that the Jews are leaving or have to leave the country. And so the houses that they bought from the Jews, they paid nothing for them. Babkas. And the second problem was that once you left the country, 25% of all the value of your property, and the Germans determined what the value was, had to be pay in, paid in taxes. So by the time you crossed the border from Germany, you had very, very little to your name. My... <clears throat> Mother was a t 
typical German Jew. German Jews have lived in Germany since the Spanish Inquisition and even before. And because they hadn't been bothered very much, just a little bit from time to time, they were extremely loyal. How loyal were German Jews to Germany? Let me give you an idea. Three quarters of the, a percent of the German population was Jewish. Three quarters of a percent. Tinsy-winsy number. But during World War I, three percent of the military was, milita uh, was Jewish. So in other words, four times the anticipated percentage was Jewish. And my mother and her brother, they were both in the military. And my mother was out on the Polish front, somewhere in Poland, and uh, she saved a bunch of German soldiers. But, uh, she was a nurse, and she saved their lives. Uh, the Germans apparently threw some gas bombs, and my mother managed to save their lives. And for that, she was awarded an Iron Cross. And that Iron Cross had a beautiful citation which says, the gratitude of the fatherland will be with you forever. And my mother believed in that. That's what it said. That's what the fatherland said. So she held on to that thing. There was a second little thing connected to it. Uh, my mother's father spent a great amount of time in the United States. And uh, he actually, I think he fought in the Civil War. And he became an American citizen. He left and went back to Germany. He married, and my mother was his daughter. But his brother stayed in the United States. And he went out to San Francisco, and he wasn't particularly successful. He was a glacier. And uh, when the earthquake of, I think, 1906 occurred, he became extremely successful. Glaciers were in great demand. <laughs> so <laughs> he, <clears throat> my mother believed that a combination of the Iron Cross and being an American citizen will be helpful to no end. And so we emigrated in 1933 to Yugoslavia. Why Yugoslavia? My father had been, had, was born in Hungary, the part that became Transylvania. And he spent time during World War I as an officer in the Austro-Hungarian army. And he spent time in Yugoslavia, so he liked Yugoslavia and was okay. So we went to Yugoslavia. But when we came to Yugoslavia, we ran into a couple of problems. The first problem was that Yugoslavia didn't need any engineers. Yugoslavia was strictly an agricultural country, 75% illiterate, and the last thing they needed were engineers. And then my parents had great problems with the language. We had to speak Croat and uh, 
also on occasion even Serbian, which is very, very similar to Croat, but they use Cyrillic alphabet and so on. My sister and I, we had no problem with it. Being kids, we picked up the language, the writing, and so on. And so I had a very happy childhood, but my father just had great, great difficulties making a living. In 1940, my father died. And a couple of months later, Germany invaded Yugoslavia. And my mother thought at that point that everything is going to be fine. But it wasn't. Turns out that the Germans really didn't give a damn whether she had the Iron Cross. And the American authorities demanded huge sums of money from my mother so that uh, she could go to the United States. And once she's in America, uh, the children could follow. But she didn't want to leave the kids. I was, in 1941, I was um, 13 years old. Uh, I'm 88, so in case if you're trying to calculate and somebody screws up in the process. <laughs> uh, so I was 13 years old, and uh, the... That's when the Germans invaded Croatia. And Croatia became immediately a fascist country, the fascist of the worst kind. Dr. Ante Pavelic, uh, he was a doctor. Not, he was not a medical doctor, but in Europe, anybody with a PhD is called doctor. And all lawyers have a PhD, and therefore they're called doctor. This man was a lawyer, he immediately opened a concentration camp called Yasenovats. Yasenovats was on the river Sava, and uh, estimates range between 200,000 and 600,000 people were murdered there. How come it can't be more accurate? The problem is that the people were killed and thrown into the river Sava, and they floated down the Sava into the Danube and the Danube into the Black Sea, and you couldn't do anything about it. Most people were, there were eight extermination camps in Europe. Seven of them were in Poland, and one of them was in Croatia. It's interesting that Germany, that pushed for extermination, didn't have one extermination camp. They dumped it all onto the others. And so Yasenovats existed. Most people, as I said, died there either by starvation or having their throats cut. There are competitions between soldiers who can cut the most throats in one day. And there was actually one guy who really won the prize. I don't know how many people he killed. And the winning prize, I, as far as I can recall, was a suckling pig and a bottle of brandy, uh, you know, which is plum brandy and something else. Uh, but it was obviously worthwhile. Uh, <clears throat> my mother was afraid that something is going to happen to my sister and something is going to happen to me. 
because she felt safe with the American citizenship and certainly with the Iron Cross. The Iron Cross was her guarantee for life. She placed my sister with one family and placed me with a couple. And that couple developed films for the resistance movement. Why my mother in her infinite wisdom placed me with somebody who was on the list of wanted people by the Gestapo, I haven't got a foggiest notion. But anyway, she did that. And so I lived in hiding for about two years. I, we had to wear yellow stars uh, with the letter J on it uh, in the front and in the back. So when you walk down the street, people sometimes pushed you, sometimes they threw stuff at you. When there was a German soldier on the sidewalk or a Croat soldier, you had to step into the gutter. You couldn't be on the same sidewalk with them. And of course the question is, hey, stupid, why did you wear the yellow star? The problem was that the soldiers frequently positioned themselves in the entrances to the buildings and locked off both ends of a street and then started, ask, started asking for identification cards. And if you had no identification card, you got arrested. If you had a Jewish identification card with the letter J on it, uh, J on it for Zhidov, uh, then uh, you, uh, and you didn't wear a star, you were arrested. Uh, many, I, I just mentioned the letter J on it. This was the letter that the Germans put on Jewish passports, the letter J. <clears throat> uh, in case if you are wondering, the Germans did not invent that letter J for the Jewish passports. It was the friendly Swiss who first did that. And then the Germans thought it was a brilliant idea and they copied it. Anyway, I lived like that in hiding for two years. I couldn't go out on the street. I couldn't go near the window. I, uh, when I called my friends, they didn't answer the phone. And I was very, very lonely. The, there were no newspapers there. And frankly speaking, I knew nothing about the Nazi movement or the Nazis. Why would that be? My parents were born in the 1880s. They were typical Victorians. They were typical people who believed that children are to be seen and not heard. And while I had a whole slew of jokes about Hitler, Goering, and Goebbels, sitting in a boat, sitting in a plane or whatever, and then some disaster struck, I knew absolutely nothing about the Nazis. The radio stations were government controlled, they didn't talk about them, and newspapers were also government controlled. So when the Nazis arrested me, I knew nothing about them. I heard that there were concentration camps in Germany, but I also heard that people got put into these camps, into the Sachsenhausen and Buchenwald, and in the first couple of years, people were 
put in the camps and they were let out again. This didn't happen afterwards. So I knew absolutely nothing. So I lived with these people and I cooked and I did some cleaning there and I developed films. And I was uh, really, really lonely. I read a lot of books. I read Mark Twain at that time. And one morning, when I was 15 years old, there was a knock at the door. And a group of Gestapo men came in. Leather coats, boots, guns, the whole bit. And they tore the place apart. They, everything in the closet was thrown on the floor. They knocked holes in the walls. And they arrested the couple. And they arrested me too. Looking back at it, I was lucky that the Gestapo arrested me. If the Croats would have arrested me, they would have cut my throat right there and then. So they took me down. I, As I said, I was 15 years old. They took me down to their secret police headquarters. <coughs> they deposited me in a room, office room. And I was there for a couple of minutes. Then suddenly a Gestapo agent came in, small guy, must have weighed about something like 250, 300 pounds, and uh, really broad shoulders, walked up to me and hit me in the face, and I flew across the room. I didn't know what was going on. And then he started questioning me. And uh, I, I was playing hero, because I didn't know that these guys have a tendency to kill. And... Uh, I felt, you know, I should keep any secrets. And so the guy questioned me and kept hitting me. And one, on one occasion, I flew against the desk and cut my head. I still have the scar. And uh, kept crying and bleeding all over his carpet. And then he locked, they locked me up in the basement cell, which must have been a cold cellar. There was nothing in it. It was just concrete floor. And... Uh, they gave me a couple of liverwurst sandwiches, and I stayed there for three days. After three days, a Gestapo agent came and put me in a car, and they, he drove me to the border town between Slovenia and Croatia. And once I was across that border, I was in German territory. And now they could do whatever they wanted with me. The first thing they did is they locked me up in a little uh, wooden shack, which uh, must have been a drunk tank, uh, because it was filled with millions and millions of fleas. It was absolutely horrendous. I was sitting there. I was having, it was in May. I, was have, I had short-sleeved shirt and a short pants, and I was sitting there in the corner, uh, all scrunched up and... Uh, scratching myself and so on. I was there for three days. Uh, I'm not going to say I was itching to get out of there. Uh, please notice I did not say that. Uh, and uh, from there, I was shipped to Graz, uh, to Graz, Austria, and I ended in the police headquarters. Uh, in, uh, and they locked me up in a cell. 
And that's where I had my only revenge on the German government because I infected the cell and the adjacent cell with fleas. That's the only revenge I ever had. I was locked up in a little cell. Remember, it was a police station. It was not a jail. It was a small cell. And I shared that cell with three other kids. Two of them had been arrested for burglary, and the third kid had murdered his mother. And I was the fourth criminal there. And I stayed there about six weeks. And one day, I looked out of the window into the police station yard, and I saw my mother walking around in a circle with some other women. And that's the last time I ever saw her. After six weeks, I was shipped to Vienna. And in Vienna, I was locked up in a magnificent, gorgeous synagogue, which unfortunately had been destroyed during the night of the broken glass. Uh, was totally trashed. There were uh, broken benches there. There was soot and water on the floor. There were torn prayer books. And I stayed there overnight with about a hundred other people. Uh, and none of them wanted to talk to me because I had a problem. They were Viennese and they all had brought in Luggage. They were told that they're being transshipped somewhere, they're being moved somewhere, resettled. And there comes this little kid without any luggage, and they thought I'm a spy for the Gestapo. So in addition to this, I spoke German-German, and they spoke Viennese-Austrian-German, which is softer. It would be about the difference between Southern Drawl and New York sort of a similar type of uh, analogy. Don't try to figure it out, anyway. Uh, <clears throat> so I was there overnight, and the next day we were loaded into a railroad, into railroad cars, and uh, under strict SS supervision, we traveled for about two or three days, and I ended up in a town called Terezin. Some of you may have heard of it. It's called Theresienstadt. Terezin was a fortress built in 1760 to protect the Austro-Hungarian Empire against the Prussians. And uh, in was a Fortress, really big walls, and when the World War I came and planes were invented, fortresses became a stupid place because all you do is you fly over it and drop a couple of bombs and it's curtains. So the military moved out and civilians moved in, and about 2,900 people lived there. They had their schools there. They used the military buildings, which were you know, office buildings and uh, apartments for the families of the officers, and they had uh, big, uh, you know, mass buildings for the soldiers. And so they lived there. And when Hitler took over Czechoslovakia in 38, he said, perfect. This is a place where we'll put a concentration camp. 
And so they made a concentration camp out of it. They threw the 3,000 people out of the town and they started moving in Jews. And uh, then at one point, the Swiss and the Swedish authorities started to complain to the German government that they feel that the Nazis are mistreating German prisoners of war. And you don't want to really go against the Geneva Convention. You want to be nice to prisoners. So the Nazis had a brilliant idea. We are going to make this a sample concentration camp. Now remember one thing. There were 90,000 people jammed in this place where before 3,000 people lived. In other words, where one person was before they had 30 people. So the place was really, really overcrowded. And the food was miserable. People were dying. And so they said, we have to do something about it. First of all, we have to know when an inspection is going to come. So they set up a busy network and found out when the Swedes or the Swiss authorities are going to inspect the camp so that they know that the Germans are really nice, good people who adhere to the Geneva Convention. The easy part was to improve the food. So they improved the food, then they wanted to put some culture in there. Remember, Theresienstadt was used strictly to move the intelligentsia of Austria and Czechoslovakia and Germany and Holland. That's it. That's, that's all they had there. I think in the end some a few Danish people came. But basically they had intelligentsia. So you had a intelligentsia European type of an atmosphere there where some people were superior to each other and they greeted each other with honorifics and so on. Uh, but hey, you got 90,000 people where 3,000 people lived. What do you do? Ah, you ship them. You ship a lot of people to Auschwitz and gas them and kill them. That's it. Finish curtains. So this way you can empty the place. You get it down to maybe 40,000 people instead of 90,000 people, and you improve the food, and they have pencils and paper and musical instruments, and they can fiddle and play, and that's it, finished. So they inspected it, and the people were very happy, and then the SS, uh, the, uh, the Swiss authorities and Swedish authorities left, and then they filled up the place again and uh, back to normal. And so Theresienstadt lived very happily. I was there for roughly 10 months. A bunch, a bunch of snobs and uh, people who tried to show off to each other. They, they even made a movie for the Nazis uh, the Führer gives the Jews a town. And that movie was never quite completed. And the guy who directed it was uh, in the original Blue Angel movie. He played the circus director. Uh, 
I'm trying to think of the guy's name. Anyway, and uh, when he finished the movie, uh, they took him and they sent him to Auschwitz and gassed him instantly. He didn't even stay any time there. I was there in Theresienstadt for 10 months. I laid railroad tracks. I exterminated vermin from the buildings. I made brooms. I made baskets. If anybody needs a big industrial basket made, just call on me and I'll see what I can do for you. Starting with willow trees. Totally useless information. But anyway, uh, I was there for 10 months. And after 10 months... I was called and uh, put in a railroad car with a hundred other people, cattle cars. Locked the doors, locked the windows, and off we went. They gave us a can of sardines, uh, or two or three cans if you wanted to, and we took these cans of sardines and we were locked up in... uh, Railroad cars, cattle cars, and we traveled east. We didn't know, have the slightest idea where we were going to. And for three days, we lived eating sardines and uh, lying in our own feces and in urine. There was nothing there. There was a bucket which they had put in originally, but a bucket uh, for 100 people is really insufficient, particularly over a period of three days or so. And then we arrived in beautiful downtown Auschwitz. Auschwitz II, or Birkenau, as it is called. And we were immediately, people were immediately separated at the gates and... uh, Most of our transport was put into a camp, B2B camp, which at that time was a weird thing because it was what's known as a family camp. They had men and women and children together in that camp. That lasted for maybe six months. Um, They kept men and children and women together in the gypsy camp and in the Jehovah's Witness camp. But the point was that the gypsies were completely exterminated, and so were the Jehovah's Witnesses. Anyway, this was the only time that they really had a family camp there. And when we got into the camp, they stripped us, They shaved our heads, they shaved our uh, genitals, they immediately put a tattoo, the number on my arm, and uh, we were, they gave us striped uniforms and we were part of Auschwitz. We did very, very little there. All the young people, all the people in in, uh, something like uh, between 13 and 18 or 19, we were put in a couple of barracks and uh, we were not with the families. We were separate. I had to go and work outside the camp a couple of times, picking turnips or whatever it was. But basically, we did nothing. 
uh, one of the big jobs that I had was uh, leveling ground in the camp. And uh, they, we had shovels, and we had to uh, st- dig up the ground. And once we had the uh, ground uh, dug up, they gave us these big wooden, uh, you know, poles with a piece of steel at the bottom, you know, to tamp down the the ground. But obviously, you know, we had very little food, and I'll talk about that in the morning, in the moment. Uh, so, no, don't, some of you got scared. My God, this guy's got to talk till the morning. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought it was a great joke. Uh, never mind. <laughs> and uh, they had these things. So the, if an SS man was standing there, we had to do this all the time. You know. But you can't do this. I mean, this is heavy work. So what we did is we turned around, and then all we did is we lifted up our shoulders, <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> So, I mean, you have to do, you know, men's ingenuity is sometimes unlimited. And uh, we tried anything under the sun except that one day it didn't work for me. And an SS man hit me with a shovel in the kidneys. And I thought, this is it. This is the end. I, we were there in, and did this work. The food was absolutely unbelievable. In the morning, we got some brown water made out of acorns, and we got two slices, and we got a slice of bread uh, made out of flour and sawdust. For lunch, we got a soup. I don't know what to call it. It's really not soup. It was salt water into which a few unwashed, dirty potatoes had been chopped up in little, tiny little pieces. And that was it, finished. And then for dinner, we had the same type of a soup and another piece of bread. The estimates range, and not mine, I don't know, I'm not a dietitian, approximately between 380 and 420 calories. And the problem was eating that stuff created two problems. Number one, you didn't get any vitamins, and we started losing our teeth. And the second problem was that we got dysentery. And whatever little food we had in ourselves, you know, we just died. Uh, People were just dying. And there was a toilet there, which... uh, one hole next to the other on both sides of the board. And you could spend maybe two, three minutes there. There was no toilet paper there. I suppose the toilet paper was expensive and they didn't want to give us newspapers. So we would hear the news. Uh, We would know that the Germans had maybe strategic withdrawals or things like that or give us the absolutely unspeakable thrill of wiping our behinds with a photograph of Hitler. 
bit. <laughs> uh, anyway, I was there for, and when we walked into the camp, there were prisoners from there from before, and they said, hey, listen, in six months you'll go through the chimney. So he says, what are you talking about? What do you mean, go through the chimney? So he said, yeah, you'll go through the chimney. And we thought it was a very, very stupid joke. And it took me approximately two and a half to three weeks until it actually sank in. Although the crematoria were only a few hundred feet from us, and we saw people marching there and crying, and we were constantly covered with the soot and the smell from these crematoria. That was the time when the, all the Hungarian Jews were brought in. They didn't even enter the camp. They were, they were unloaded at the railroad siding and immediately walked over to the crematoria. And it took us about two, three weeks until it suddenly dawned on us what is going on. In daytime, we had each other. We, had, we spoke to each other and so on, and we tried to poo-poo it all and so on. But at night, we were lying close to each other. We were pressed next to each other, and we were very, very, very lonely because suddenly you had time to think. In daytime, you didn't. I was there from roughly May or so until... July. On July 6th, and it's about the only one of the few days, uh, there's another day that I know as well. Uh, on July 6th, all the young people in the camp were told to line up in one particular area of the camp, and Dr. Mengele walked in. Dr. Mengele was a Nazi doctor who had a PhD in anthropology, and he also had an MD in medicine, and he, he conducted experiments. He conducted experiments particularly on twins and on dwarfs. So every time a transport came, and he immediately selected twins, and then he took the twins, and he experimented on them. For instance, he broke their legs, and then he tried to cure one twin one way and another twin another way, and once he finished with it, then he killed them both. He also, uh, he, I think, once took two twins and sold them together to see if he can make a Siamese twins out of them. Uh, and so Dr. Mengele came in the camp with a bunch of SS men, and they were standing in one spot and we were telling jokes. They were having a time of their lives. And all the young people, and I was amongst them, between the ages of roughly 13 to 18, we had to line up and strip naked and run past him. And we were running for our lives. We were trying to look taller. We were trying to look stronger. Uh, we were smiling. We Anything to give us an advantage. And there was Dr. Mengele like a ballet master, you know, doing this or doing that. 
you know, and that was it. And so the person went immediately to the other side and there were SS men there and there were carpos. These were the criminals who were in charge of us. You see, I forgot to mention one thing, that we were inside the camp, we were supervised by criminals, murderers, thieves, and so on. Germany didn't have a death penalty for murderers, only for or guilty people. They only had a death penalty for innocent people. And so these murderers and thieves and perverts, they were looking after us because while you may be a Jewish professor or doctor, but a German non-Jewish killer was far superior than that on a much higher level. And so these guys made sure that we were separated. When we were finished with it, with that run, there were 300 of us there. And we had to run again. There were 200. And then the run again, there were 89 of us. And the 89 of us, we were taken to another camp, adjacent camp. And the remaining 4,900 people over the next five days were taken to the gas chambers and killed. Ten months later, when the war was over, of the 89 who were saved, separated by Dr. Mengele, 46 were still alive. I stayed in that Auschwitz B camp for another month or so, and then I was transferred to Auschwitz I, which was the camp where all the criminals and murderers and thieves and perverts were, and I had to work in the stables. I had to clean the stables, I had to brush the horses, I, I, and it was winter, and it was unbelievably cold. There were some Greek kids who had come who were assigned to the same job, and in the morning when we lined up, they just suddenly turned white and fell over because they couldn't take the cold. In round about New Year, 1944, which was the coldest winter on record in the 20th century, <clears throat> all the German criminals, all the murderers, the thieves and so on, were put into German uniforms and sent to the Russian front. And the rest of us, we were given a piece of bread and we started on a death march. And I say death march. We walked for an hour or two and then we stopped and the people who couldn't get up were shot. And we continued like that throughout the day. We didn't talk to each other. We were just... The first night we slept in some stables and the second day things got really, really bad because we didn't have any food. The only water which we had was the ice from the road. And uh, people started stripping themselves, taking clothes off because uh, they couldn't uh, carry the clothes. It was too heavy. And they just collapsed 
and were shot by the Germans. By the third day, we arrived at the railroad siding. By this time, we had walked 35 miles, and of the 60,000 who had left Auschwitz, 15,000 were dead by that point. And then we were loaded into open railroad cars, completely open. And we went on a four-day ride. I can remember just a little bit from the first day, but afterwards my mind just... Uh, I, I can't remember a damn thing anymore, whatever happened. And after four days, we arrived in Mauthausen, Austria. And Mauthausen, Austria was a concentration camp from hell. It has been established specifically for the prisoners of war who had misbehaved in prisoner of war camps. Uh, they were forced to carry a hundred and uh, pound rocks up 186 steps and then go down and get some more rocks and just throw these rocks into the valley. Uh, they played a game with them called parachute jumping without a parachute where they were walking, had to walk up the 186 steps and when they came to the top they had to push each other off the cliff into the valley. They were stripped naked in the winter and sprayed with water. Anyway, we, those of us who were still alive, by this time over half the people were dead, we limped into the camp. It was in January, and we were showered. And we collapsed, screaming with pain, because all of us were frostbitten. Some people died on the spot. After three days, my feet started to rot. And because I was swearing in Croat, there was a Serbian prisoner of war there who was a doctor before the war. He was, had been there for some time, and I think he uh, managed to grind the spoon into a knife and he cut off my toes on one foot and part of the toes on the other foot. And that's how he saved my life. And then things got bad. They got really bad because there was no food there. The SS had all left and they had strictly old soldiers, people who were 60 years old and 15-year-old kids. They were guarding us. And the only food we had were moldy bread. And our daily ration was something like a tablespoon of moldy bread. I slept next to a dead man for three days just to get his ration. And there were piles and piles of bodies all over. On the 5th of May, we were liberated by American forces. And uh, they saw us. They didn't know what was going on. They had no idea how to cope with this whole situation. So the only thing they could do was they could lock, they locked up the gate so that we diseased people wouldn't run into the town neighborhood. 
a couple of people had run away and they went to local farm and they killed the whole, uh, some uh, cows and stuff like that and they started playing havoc and killing the population. Anyway, the only food they had were military rations, K rations. And they gave us these K rations and 20,000 people died. We got uncontrollable diarrhea eating this stuff. These rations were 1,000, 2,000 calories each, and it was just like drinking olive oil. And that was that. We stayed on for, I stayed on for three more weeks, and then I hitchhiked by train back to Yugoslavia through Hungary, through countries that were occupied by Russians who didn't, uh, didn't give a damn about anybody else, who were tearing the world apart through countrysides that were destroyed by the Nazis. For instance, when the Nazis withdrew, they took on the railroad engines, they took a couple of railroad engines and they created some big plows. And they put these plows between the railroad uh, tracks and then they started traveling. And so they tore up all the wooden ties, sleepers, you know, for the railroad tracks. So the tracks couldn't be used. And we saw destroyed towns. I saw railroad yards where one railroad car was on top of the other from the uh, bombing. And we, I ended up first in Budapest. And in Budapest, uh, there were people cooking on the railroad, uh, in the railroad station. And that's where I had my first meal. I traveled with another guy and he had picked up a coat and he exchanged that coat for two bowls of Hungarian goulash and a pair of shoes. And uh, that goulash, I, I mean, it burned out my guts. It was unbelievably hot. It was the first meat and the first uh, spicy food, spices that I had in two years. That night we slept in a cemetery, in a, a monastery in Budapest, and the next day I continued to Yugoslavia. When I came there, I found communism, pure communism, communism at its worst. They were arresting people and shooting people and punishing people, and the, the people of the nation were sentencing the exploiters and so on. It was unbelievable. I stayed there for two years. And then by hook and by crook, I managed to get out of the country. And I went to England. And when I came to England, I was 19 years old. By the way, when I was liberated, I was 17 and I weighed 64 pounds which is just about 100 pounds less than what I'm weighing now. <clears throat> so when I came to England, I had no skills. I had no schooling. 
and I couldn't speak English. And I started working as a laborer, then as a machine tool fitter, then as a tool and die maker. I met a very, very lovely young lady from Czechoslovakia, and we got married, and we went to the United States. I worked in daytime, I went to college at night, and I became an expert in my field, and uh, had two sons, and my two sons have two delightful wives, and they have two children each. Life has been good to me, because most of my friends, the ones I had from before the war, were, are dead. They didn't survive that. What message can I leave with you? Only one. Don't be a bystander. When you see something wrong, open your mouth. That's it. It was totally unnecessary what happened to us. I like to leave you with the, to me, the most beautiful words describing this by Dr. Martin Luther King, who said, in the end, we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Warner. Now, he is uh, graciously offered to answer any questions. If you have any uh, that you would like to ask, uh, he'll take a few questions. So does anyone have anything they would like to ask? Yes. Uh, you'll have to excuse me, but my hearing is really lousy. So what happened to the couple? I, I haven't got the slightest idea. I don't even know what their name was. I, it was uh, for their safety that I didn't know it. Uh, and the other thing is this. I grew up in a time period when uh, kids did not talk to adults. Uh, you know, we were sort of a separate, you know, when adults talk to you, but you didn't uh, talk to adults, you didn't have to do any of that stuff. You know, it wasn't an open, easy relationship the way we have it today with our children. Uh, my, you know, I grew up amongst Victorians, and these people kept that. These people were older, obviously older, but they must have been born about, uh, who knows, 1915 or so, something like that. So they still carry the same atmosphere. He wants to shake your hand. But He wants to shake your hand. The clean one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you. Any other questions? Did you ever meet or know Corey Ten Boom, the uh, woman from uh, Tim- Holland? Did you ever meet her or know her? Her no. and her family had saved Jewish people? No. No. My, <clears throat> just as an aside, my wife <clears throat> was saved by Nicholas Winton. Nicholas Winton, I don't know if you heard of him. He was a 29-year-old English stockbroker, and he went to Czechoslovakia on a vacation to help a friend, and when he came there, they found many children without parents. So he decided to forge documents, and he, under the kinder transport uh, rules, imported 669 children, and uh, he saved 669. Actually, he saved 250 more, but uh, the kids were put on a train, but on that day, war broke out between Britain and Germany, and all the kids were killed. But the 669 children went to England. They lived in, my wife lived in a boarding school for blind children and afterwards in a Czech boarding school and so on. But uh, the, the 669 survived. And I think of the children, of the, the t- uh, kinder transport children, there were something like 9,800 altogether. I think three are sitting in the House of Lords. Quite an achievement. How did you survive? I mean, how did you survive? How did you get past Dr. Mengele? How, how did I survive? Uh, there are basically three standard rules. None of, uh, one of them is luck. Number two is adaptability. And number three is not sticking out. Okay? That's it. <laughs> Take your pick. <laughs> I went through all three stages, okay? Uh, uh, let me tell you something which, uh, you know, I passed Dr. Mengele, and so people say, hey, that's a big, big, big achievement, you know, and so on. Yes, it is a big achievement. But I think a much bigger achievement was surviving Mauthausen because of the starvation and the diseases that were there. People were completely normal one day and the next day they just were dead because of all the diseases that were there. That I managed to live next to diseased people in a barrack full of dead bodies and survive, that to me is a bigger miracle than passing Dr. Mengele. Okay? And that's an invisible enemy.
efforts uh, to maintain your Jewish faith in, uh, in that time, crying out to God within you or the people you were with? It's an interesting question, but <clears throat> I was the typical middle-class uh, Jewish kid uh, who uh, religion didn't mean much to me. I went, uh, I had to have religious education because that was a requirement by the state that all children have a religious education. When I went to high school, uh, there were four classes of my grade. Three of them were Catholics because uh, Croatia was Catholic. And one of them had Muslims, Jews, uh, Serbian Orthodox, and Greek Orthodox. And then once a week, uh, a, a Jewish teacher came. In my case, a man called Samuel Romano, which was obviously a Serbian Jew. Uh, and uh, the 10 Jewish, 13 Jewish kids got together in one class and he uh, taught us Judaism, the basics of Judaism, until I had my bar mitzvah. I had a bar mitzvah. My father had been dead. I had a bar mitzvah. I went to shul and uh, I read from the Torah and then I went home and there were two friends there, and we had some cake, and that was it, finished. I got a fountain pen. And then the next morning, Hitler walked in, and that was it. Took my fountain pen. Yeah. What was the transition like going from concentration camps into daily normal life? Uh, it wasn't... Uh, the it wasn't a normal transition because I didn't go to normal daily lives. I went back, f I went from the concentration camp uh, to Yugoslavia. I visited with some, uh, I, I, I visited some friends. My mother wasn't there and so on. Uh, so I visited friends of the family and uh, a husband had died, and a woman took me in, and she gave me a room, and I spent there a week trying to uh, sleep. I couldn't sleep in a bed, for instance. I slept on the carpet, which was to me the softest bed, because I was sleeping on, on wooden boards all that time. And uh, there was a huge uh, food shortage and so on, and after a week... Uh, I, the Jewish community center managed to get me into a hospital to have my feet operated on because there were bone splinters in the feet and I, I, I could hardly walk. And then when I got, I spent something like two weeks in the hospital, they operated on me. And then I was transferred to a, the only school that uh, gave me some hope was the partisan uh, high school, and they were all kids who had been fighting in the forests of Bosnia, and uh, I was amongst them. Most of them were illiterate. Most of them uh, 
they were absolutely uh, very uh, uneducated people. And I spent about a year going to that school, and then a couple of kids accused me of not being a true partisan, which was absolutely correct. And I didn't want to end up in jail, so I left that, and I went to a regular school, and then I managed to get out. But I was under great stress and pressures from the moment that I walked out of the camp because I had no family, I had nothing. You know, it's like me dumping you somewhere. Uh, and in addition to this, I was terrified because I lived under a big, big lie. I told them that I was a Yugoslav and that we got naturalized in a town in Yugoslavia, which I knew had been bombed flat, so there were no documents there. And then I got a letter from the government. They said, Dear Werner, you are hereby called to join the Yugoslav military, the second chemical division in Serbia. And I had enough of chemistry and military, and other things. So I tried to get out of the country, but it wasn't there. I was under strain. I was under strain, and which may be just as well, because I didn't have time to think, oh, woe is me, what do I do now? And when I came to England, I had a double problem. I couldn't speak the language, and I had no skills, and I had to eat. You know, so I was under constant pressures. I don't know if I answered your question, but if I didn't, try to figure it out and tell me afterwards. Thank you. Yeah. What happened to your sister? Uh, <clears throat> my sister was uh, went was with her family. And after a year, the family said, uh, look, forget about it. It's getting too dangerous for us. You have to leave. So my sister escaped from Yugoslavia to Italy. I mean, going from Yugoslavia to Italy is like going from Long Island to uh, New Jersey. You know, it's not uh, uh, nothing big. And... Uh, as she crossed the border, she was arrested by the Italians and put in an Italian detention camp. The Italians always had a fabulous relationship between the Jews and themselves. They always had a fabulous relationship. Um, Mussolini's girlfriend was Jewish, okay? The mayor of Rome was Jewish. I mean, what do you want? But uh, uh, so uh, Mussolini actually had a big split with Hitler when Hitler insisted that Mussolini arrest all the Jews and Mussolini said no. But anyway, in the end, Mussolini lost. Uh, so my sister was in a, one of these detention camps. Sometimes the Nazis took people from these detention camps and sent them to Auschwitz. 
I met some Italian Jews in Auschwitz. And uh, my sister was in a camp for about a year. She survived. She stayed on in Italy. And then she came to the United States. And when I got married, she wrote to me and said, hey, come on. And uh, I listened to her advice. She died in 1999. And uh, no, uh, things worked out. Do we have any other questions? by after your liberation before you were actually able to speak to others about Jessica? Uh, It's not a question how much time did I have uh, when I was able to speak. Uh, When I came back to Yugoslavia, there were other kids who had been in the camps and uh, we didn't discuss this amongst ourselves. You know, I've been there, done it, you know, uh, let's get on with life. Uh, when I came to the state, uh, when I came to England, my I had a cousin there, and he asked me, "Where were you during the war?" And I told him, and he said, "Don't you dare to say this to anybody." So I said, "Why?" So I said, "Because people will think that you are nuts, and they'll send you back to your country of origin, which is Germany." And I would have needed that like a hole in the head. So I didn't say anything while I was in England. When I came to the States, uh, people asked me in the beginning, uh, where were you? So I said, you know, I was in here and there in Auschwitz. I said, oh, I lost 17 cousins in Poland. I said, did you know any of them? No, but I lost 17. You know, I didn't want to get involved in a competition. Who lost more? You know, I, I lost only my mother. You know, so I didn't want to start getting involved in that, so I simply didn't say anything. And uh, about 20 years ago, uh, when I retired, uh, the local newspaper, Smithstown News, uh, had an article that uh, the high school is giving a course on Holocaust studies again. And so I, I lived two, three miles from the school, so I called them up and say, hey, do you need an exhibit? I'm available. So they said, yeah, come on up. And then I spoke uh, for about 20 minutes, and uh, students asked me questions, but they were very, very stupid questions. I was an industrial engineer, and as such, I was taught to listen to questions. And as long when people ask you stupid questions after a lecture, that means they didn't get your point or you didn't get across. But I realized that they knew absolutely nothing about the Holocaust. They asked me questions. What did you do over the weekends? Uh, Was the food kosher in Auschwitz? Um, did you ever meet Hitler? You know, questions like that. So I obviously realized that I have to do more. So I made an overhead, I made uh, overhead slides, and the next year it was a little bit better. Uh, 
And uh, then I ended up with about 80 overhead slides. And they kept falling on the floor all the time. And one day a lady came up to me and said, you know, my son can make a PowerPoint presentation for you. And so she offered me a 14-year-old son, and I hate kids like that. <laughs> and <laughs> I spent the summer with him making a PowerPoint presentation. That was the first one I made that maybe 10 years ago. Since that time, I made dozens and dozens of my own. And the one which I wanted to show you tonight has something like 350 slides. But anyway, I hope I didn't bore you. I hope, and I'd like to thank you for listening to me. And please, don't be silent when you see something. Thank you very much. We'd like to just thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, we're going to conclude with the Hatikva here in a moment, the national anthem of Israel. We know that out of the ashes of the Holocaust, the nation of Israel was uh, birthed, so we want to conclude with that. If you're visiting with us tonight, we just thank you for coming to commemorate this uh, very important holiday with us. Uh, you were probably given a card when you came in. If you give that to the usher, Chris, she has a little gift to give you. We also want to let you know we have some coffee and a few cookies just right there in the foyer. Uh, just before you leave, uh, you, you, know, you can have and, uh, and just schmooze with a few people if you would like uh, to do that. And, uh, and again, thank you. Saturday is our normal service. And this Saturday we are celebrating uh, Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israeli Independence Day, which actually ne is next week. And we're having falafels for lunch. So we invite you all to join us. Our service starts at 10.45. But if you'd like to stand with us uh, right now.